Hey everyone, thank you for joining me again on the BIPOC Outside Podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell, and today we're sitting down with James Edward Mills. James is a freelance journalist, contributor to Nat Geo, fellow at the Banff Center, here local to us in Alberta, professional educator, recipient of the Paul K. Penzel Award for Environmental Education, and the author of The Adventure Cap, Changing the Face of the Outdoors. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, as you know, this show does not happen without our title sponsor, the Outward Bound Canada Training Academy for Outdoor Professionals. With program locations across Canada that offer free programming to address skill gaps in the outdoor sector, the Training Academy is building the next generation of outdoor leaders. With a commitment to meaningful Indigenous representation, and by prioritizing BIPOC and 2S LGBTQ inclusion, the Academy is reimagining what the outdoor industry looks like. Check out their website to sign up for fall sessions. Visit ocbtrainingacademy.ca or find their partner link on our website. We also need to shout out our presenting sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Mountain Gazette is a biannual large format magazine celebrating mountain culture, featuring beautiful long-form storytelling from real people who love the outdoors. These are stories you will sit with and savor. Each issue also contains stunning photography. These are magazines you'll keep and come back to. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Check them out at mountaingazette.com or find their partner link on our website. James, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am also awesome. It's finally raining, which we need. Where are you today? So today I am in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Oh, lovely. Yeah. And you're in Wisconsin? I am. And it's a beautiful day today. We've had a spate of cold, rainy, sleety weather for the last couple of weeks. And I went out for a nice mile run this morning and it was glorious. It's a good day to be alive. Absolutely. So you're originally from Los Angeles. Is that correct? I am. And what was your introduction to the outdoors? Well, I grew up in a community that had the oldest Boy Scout troop west of the Mississippi River. And that afforded me an opportunity from a very young age to have access to equipment and mentors, transportation, and the ability and inclination to go literally any place we wanted to. So we went surfing, we went skiing, we went backpacking, we went climbing, we went whitewater rafting. We had all the opportunities at one could ask for when it came to spending time in the outdoors. And, and in many ways, I'd have to say that I was pretty spoiled because it wasn't until much later in life that I realized how privileged I was to have so many wonderful opportunities at a very early age to have access to the outdoors. So to this day, I really am grateful for the many mentors that I had and the experiences that I was able to enjoy to make spending time in the outdoors as natural for me is breathing. Incredible. It is an incredible privilege. Absolutely. So what is your favorite way to get outdoors these days? You know, the thing I love most is fly fishing. And I'm a big believer in free-flowing wild rivers. And here in Wisconsin, we're very fortunate to have a region called the Driftless, which is the the scar left behind by a retreating glacier of the Ice Age you know, over 10,000 years ago. And, and it's created a series of rivers and tributaries and low-lying areas that have you know, beautiful access to trout and bass and, and a lot of wild 
natural fish species, but it's also very well managed by the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. There's quite a bit of fish stocking. So, you know, being able to spend time in these rivers is just amazing. And I'm always trying to find someplace new, but I'm also really excited about going to the places that I really enjoy going back again and again. So yeah, looking forward to getting the season started because now that the ice is off the water and it's getting warmer, the, the fish is starting to to circulate. So I'm looking forward to getting out soon. Oh, wow. I have been looking at fly fishing as the next thing to try. I, it was flipping back and forth between trying to get back into skateboarding or fly fishing, but I've decided at this age, I don't bounce the way that I used to. So fly fishing is going to be it. <laughs> Good. I think you definitely should. I haven't spent a lot of time on rivers in Edmonton or in you know, that part of Canada, but I'm certain that there's wonderful opportunities to fly fish in your neck of the woods. I would definitely try to find those places and have someone take you and teach you and, and just enjoy yourself. It's a wonderful way to experience the outdoors. So in going back a little bit, in 2013, a lot, you supported and documented Expedition Denali, which was the first attempted Denali summit by an all-Black team. And it was thwarted only by weather and by permit windows, really. Why was this expedition so important? You know, it's interesting because, well, first of all, because it had never been done before. You know, and, you know, especially in the world of mountaineering, I think we're always looking to try to find those firsts or those nexts or those, those truly great expedition experiences. But I think perhaps more than anything else, I mean, what was making this particular expedition so important, which this summer is celebrating its 10th anniversary, you know, we had hoped to be able to identify and elevate and support a group of not just athletes, but activists, you know, people who would go back into their communities and share their experience and what they learned and what they saw how they made it to this highest peak in North America and encourage a new generation of young people to be able to have similar experiences of their own. And I don't think that the expedition can make full credit for the increased participation that we've seen in the 10 years since. But, you know, I definitely think that we helped to you know, literally kickstart the the experience for a lot of people because you know we've had many people literally come up to me and say you know i never really thought about this before i saw the film i read your book i read magazine articles i met some of the climbers i went to a talk and now it's something that i'm really interested in and we're seeing more and more of that and that truly is what makes you know me think that it was a really good investment of time and resources in order to make this wonderful Happen. I absolutely agree with you. So the expedition became the basis for the book, The Adventure Gap, Changing the Face of the Outdoors. And one of the things that struck me when I first read the book a number of years ago was in the prologue. You talk about the history of Black adventure and you talk about the history of, of Black peoples being engaged at the onset of colonialism in the exploration of North America. And I thought that was so important because typically when we talk about Black adventure in the outdoors, it's in terms of very recent firsts. Talk to me about including that and talk to me about that history. Well, it's really important to understand that you know, Black adventure, if we want to call it that, goes back to the beginning of adventure. I mean, we can literally go all the way back to the Egyptians. We can go all the way back to the Babylonians. 
you know, we can go all the way back to people of color across the African continent that, you know, had adventure. But if we want to take a look at the modern adventure era, you know, over the last 500 years of, let's call it American history, if we're talking specifically about North America, we have evidence of Black people being engaged in what can only be described as very adventurous activities. The very first voyage to America by European colonists and conquistadors included Black people as well. The pilot of the Santa Maria was a Spaniard of African descent by the name of Pedro Alonso Nino. So you literally have Black history starting in American history on day one. And then that goes on to the Spanish conquest, where you have people of African descent being directly engaged and involved in the exploration and ultimate exploitation and conquest of North America. But people of color were there then too. You know, and then we can fast forward to after the Revolutionary War with the Lewis and Clark mission. I mean, not very many people know that William Clark had an enslaved man who was a principal character in the Lewis and Clark expedition. His name was York, and he literally traversed the entire continent and became the first Black American to visit the Pacific Ocean in 1803. Okay, so this goes back 200 years, and so if we keep you know bringing those narratives forward, there's more and more and more all the time. I mean, you've got Black men and women who settled the West. You have Black men and women who were part of the Plains Wars and sadly the eradication of Native people and the displacement of Native people. But you also have Black people who were part of the creation of the national park system, you know, where you have members of the 9th and 10th Cavalry, a unit known as the Buffalo Soldiers, that were part of the protection and patrol of Yosemite. You have the 25th Infantry who rode bicycles from Bozeman, Montana to Yellowstone National Park, and then went on to ride those same bicycles from Bozeman to St. Louis to quite literally visit the place where the Lewis and Clark Expedition began a hundred years before that. And so we can go on and on and on and on and find all of these amazing narratives of people of color who were part of the early exploration of what we'll describe as the modern adventure movement. But that was also true. You know, and one of the, the motivating characters of the Denali expedition was a man by the name of Charles Madison Crenshaw, who became the first Black American to summit Denali in 1964. You know, oddly enough, seven days after the signing of the Civil Rights Act, you know, and quite literally personifying the dream that Martin Luther King Jr. defined a year earlier at the March on Washington, in which he inspired Americans to climb to the mountaintop. And so we can take a look at these historic references and ground modern people of color in the iconic history of exploration going all the way back to the beginning. I think it's so important, and I've learned so much through your writings about Black people's involvement in the creation of the national parks, because when we're looking at the history of national parks, we're looking at a lot of negative history. We're looking at the removal of indigenous peoples. We're looking at Jim Crow laws that didn't allow Black people to recreate in them. But we have to include that other part of that narrative, that part of the creation of this and the good intent behind it, despite how it may or may not have been executed, Black people were involved in that too. Exactly. And I think that it's really important that we take the good with the bad and the bad with the good. 
you know, and we have a comprehensive, inclusive narrative that allows us all to learn. And sadly, though, you know, when we have these conversations about critical race theory and narratives that literally choose to overlook those things that make us uncomfortable, that's when we really start spiraling down the rabbit hole in which we will fail to learn the lessons of the past. You know, if we don't recognize the fact that every inch of land on North and South America is stolen land, okay, if we don't admit that the wealth in much of the agrarian infrastructure of North America, much of South America as well, was built on the backs of enslaved people. We'll operate under the false belief that it's just here for no reason other than the grace of God. And therefore, all we need to do is be grateful for it. And for those of you who don't have the bounty of the earth, that's your fault. Because we operate under the false narrative that we live in a nation where all men are created equal. And that very statement is contradictory in and of itself, because apparently that doesn't include women. And back then, it really didn't even mean all white men. It meant white men with property, land, yeah. with property and wealth. You know, and so when we start being utterly inclusive in our narratives, we start to realize that we do include and mean everyone. So we mean Black people, we need Native Americans, we need and include Chinese immigrants who built the railroads that include snakes who are our primary laborers when it comes to our, our farming systems today. You know, that it means all of these different people whose interests need to be protected and preserved along with all of our collective interests because we can't do this alone. And it's foolhardy to act as if we're doing this or we're in this all by ourselves because clearly we're not. And that I think is at the heart of why I think it's so important that we are utterly inclusive in the management of our public land because, you know, we have an emerging demographic of non-white people in this country. In, in fact, in many places around the world, you know, it, I think that there's a lot of folks that would be shocked to realize that there are many more brown people on this planet than there are white people. And that's becoming exponentially more true in this country as well. If we do not include these emerging demographics in the ethos and the logical principles of environmental conservation, what happens if the majority of our population has no affinity for nature? You know, what happens if we have millions and millions and millions of people in this country who would rather extract natural resources than protect and preserve them? You know, what happens when we find ourselves in an environment where we would much rather pave a natural lands landscape than save it. And that means building roads, establishing infrastructure, going into areas that are still at risk. You know, in in this is a real world example that I'll share with you. Some friends of mine and I went on a little fishing expedition to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska just last summer. And it just so happened that we arrived on the very day that the Biden administration announced the research into what is now known as the Willow Project. And the Willow Project essentially is designed to create the infrastructure necessary for domestic oil and natural gas extraction in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Now, for those who believe in energy independence as we're now describing it, that could make a lot of sense. Until we start looking at our history, I'm going to go back 100 years very quickly. Native Americans in 
Much of the Plains region relied on the buffalo as their primary source of food and culture and grounding themselves in the land. One of the ways that we successfully eradicated native people was by eliminating the buffalo. Today, in that exact same area in the Arctic, the keystone species is the porcupine caribou. And not unlike the buffalo, porcupine caribou is a species that native people by the tens of thousands still rely on today on to basically take care of all of their primary nutritional needs because everything that gets to Alaska is flown there. So that means that everything is going to have a transportation tax automatically. So it makes sense for us to be able to rely on food and natural resources that can be produced on the land that we currently live on. Now, the, the area in the Willow Project in this region of the Arctic is literally slated to go where the native people call the place where life begins. And that's quite literal because apparently in this particular space is the only place that, that the porcupine caribou mothers give birth. And if we eradicate this particular area and put thumper trucks and re refining machinery and roads and a variety of other things, we will decimate the porcupine caribou herd. And with it, we will de desecrate the people who live there, a native community called the Gwich'in. And if the Gwich'in lose the porcupine caribou herd, their culture is gone. And then you add to that the fact that the Arctic is being more directly impacted by the impacts of climate change than any other place in the country right now. And so that literally puts this community at a double whammy impact, okay? You get the energy extraction that's depleting the environment and the energy consumption thousands of miles away that is directly impacting the community. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we protect the Gwich'in? Do we protect the Arctic? And most people will say, well, you know, we have to protect the economy. We have to you know, protect our ability to generate income and a variety of other things. And that's all well and good until the impacts of our extraction and consumption of energy starts more directly impacting communities a little further upstream than the Gwich'in. Because the Gwich'in aren't that far from Fairbanks. And Fairbanks isn't that far from Anchorage. And Anchorage isn't that far from Tacoma. All right. And so the dominoes ultimately will start to fall, okay, faster and sooner than they have in years past. So why not stop them from toppling right now, okay, by coming up with alternative forms of energy and start producing, you know, more domestic production closer to home so that we don't have to extract energy from a pristine natural environment that is the cornerstone of native people's existence. You know, and so all this though is to say that our love and passion for these places can begin with our love of recreation. So we discovered all this just because we wanted to go fishing, okay? And and we had a, a wonderful experience. The Gates of the Arctic National Park is the second least visited national park in the system. Okay, out of 62 terrestrial national parks, this is the one of two that people are least likely to visit. We had a wonderful fishing beach all to ourselves for five days. It was spectacular. It was glorious. And it is at risk. So my purpose in having conversations like this one and to be able to, to begin a bigger, broader conversation about why these things are so important begins with my love of nature. But at the end of the day, it ends with my interest in creating 
a world in which we can all live and survive and ultimately thrive. You know, because I don't think it's too late. There's plenty of space. I think there's plenty of time, but we need to act now because every time we fail to act is one more moment that we will lose and never get back. What a phenomenal example. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think I, I spent five years living north of 60 in the Northwest Territories. And so I have a, you know, sort of a more personal perspective of what it is to live up there and to not, you know, grocery stores aren't necessarily an option. And it's so important. Not everyone is going to have the privilege of, of being able to go, of being able to spend time. And so we have to find ways to inspire in people, you know, the interest and the willingness to protect it without necessarily being able to understand it, because it is very difficult to have someone in an urban setting really understand what you mean by saying, you know, by describing life north of the 60th parallel. Right. And that really, and then it's, it's an even bigger step to ask them to care about it. Okay. It's, it's one thing to understand. It's another thing entirely to say that, well, I'm going to change my life in significant ways to make sure that this area that you just described to me that I've never been to before that I probably will never see is protected long term. And, and sadly, I think that we're really not going to make any substantive changes until it more directly impacts us. And depending on your point of view, fortunately, it's starting to happen now. You know, our winters are shorter. Our storms are becoming more violent. We're having less reliable sources flowing water. You know, if, if there's not enough, many times there's too much. So now we've got the, 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 the double-edged sword of drought and flooding in the same geographic regions. You're praying for, for rain one day and you're damning it the next. You know, I mean, we need to be able to create a culture and an economy that recognizes the ecological imbalances that are persistent throughout our planet right now because of human impact. You know, and there are things that we can do. And, and the thing that a lot of people kind of wrestle with the, but I, I want to drive a car. I want to fly in airplanes. I want to do all of these things that make life great. I mean, the last thing I want to do is cut down on my travel. And I, I think a lot of people feel the same way. But at the same time, though, I mean, I've noticed and you probably have as well that a lot of the places you really want to go to are incredibly crowded. So now we've got the added interest. And that's the other part of this equation too. Now that we've inspired so many more people to visit these amazing places, we're making them so heavily impacted that the experience is actually a little different than it was even a decade ago because there's so many more people who become aware of it and they're now visiting. So the question then is, can we make it so that people will have the positive experience in the outdoors but do it in such a way that they minimize their impact. And I think most importantly, respect the interests of other people to have an experience similar to their own. You know, and that's, that's a, depending on who you're talking to, that can be a, a lot to ask. When I think about some of the more exclusive recreational experiences that one can have that can be made easier by putting more money into it. So for example, probably my favorite example, it takes a lot of effort to make it to the Grand Canyon to go on a two-week paddling adventure. So if you've got $5,000 to spend, probably five to $8,000, you can get a seat on a commercial rafting trip. Not very many people have five to $8,000 per person to spend on an experience like that. And those who have that money will make that investment. So that automatically rarefies the experience 
to people who can afford it. Now, the analog to that or the solution to that is to have a permitting system where if you're prepared to wait, and in my case, almost 10 years to get a permit to paddle the Grand Canyon, you can do it. And if you, and if you plan it right, it'll cost you a fourth of what it would cost on a, on a commercial basis. But the problem though, is that you have to have the experience, you have to have the equipment, you have to have the expertise, you have to have the ability to drop everything when your permit comes through and get yourself to Arizona and, and put yourself on the water. Who can do that? Kate, not very many people have the capacity to make something like that happen. And, and that's another one of the limitations. And so, but here's the thing, I mean, cause that is nothing technically to do with race. Okay. But it has everything to do with socioeconomics, but sadly in this country, our socioeconomics are directly parallel to impacts of race. And so that, and that's not to say that people of color are necessarily poor. It, we are disproportionately economically challenged. And so I think that as a society and as a culture, we've kind of framed our own existence around the notion that you know, we are going to be less economically inclined to do certain things. But one of the, the ways that we're finally starting to emerge in our, in our society, and this is perhaps since the Denali expedition, this is definitely within the last decade and a half, more and more people of color are starting to invest their leisure time, disposable income, and desire in spending time in the outdoors. And that's amazing. Okay. That's something that I didn't see when I was a kid. It's something that I'm seeing more and more. And I think that, that we have to thank the influx of climbing gyms in urban areas. I think that we have to thank very thoughtful and proactive obscenity groups like Outdoor Afro and Latino Outdoors and other fabulous organizations around folks fishing you know, that have gone out of their way to make positive ex experiences that are meaningful and culturally, socially significant to a broader cross-section of the American public so that they can see themselves as part of these experiences. And so my hope is that in the future, as we're evolving these conversations, we're going to see more and more people from underrepresented segments of the population not only imagine and see themselves as part of the natural environment, we're going to insist on it. We're going to put ourselves in a position where we're going to say, we belong here. We want to be here. And come hell or high water, we're going to be here. And it's at that point then, oh, sadly, we're going to have to come directly up against what can only be described as white supremacy. Because there are still elements out there, very explicit elements out there, that want to limit where black and brown people on this continent and even around the world go. It's not codified in law in many places, not really. I mean, there are no signs that say you black people can't come here. Mexicans need not apply. I mean, it's, uh, those kinds of racist tropes don't exist anymore. But you do have those individual isolated circumstances, people making it deliberately and explicitly uncomfortable for people of color to spend time in the outdoors. I'm grateful to say that that has seldom, if ever, has happened to me, but I know for a fact that it happens to other people. And whether it has happened to me or not, I'm not going to say, well, then it obviously doesn't happen because it's never happened to me. You know, I will ask, so what was that experience like for you? And what can we do to make sure that we don't dissuade you from having a, an experience that is more positive in the future? 
And that's the thing that, that we're missing right now. These moments in our time when we're saying, okay, you are going to be made to feel safe and welcome and seen and respected, and you're going to have a good time. That can come from the National Park Service and the U.S. Forest Service in terms of you know, creating a more inclusive interpretation of the space so that there's signage, so that there is historic narrative that goes along with the experience that a person can have in these places, and to just to recognize that there are cultural, social prohibitions that make the experience of people of color uncomfortable. That's not to say that anyone is doing anything explicitly to make that happen. It's just a feeling. Yeah. And even if it's, not, if, even if it's in our own heads, it, those feelings need to be addressed and respected and managed in such a way that, you know, we need to be very explicit to say, thanks for coming. It's good to see you. I'm so glad you're here because it's only when we make it so that people are not just tolerated in a space is it's only then that we'll be able to say these are our people that we want to be part of the overall environmental protection movement and these are the constituents that are ultimately going to help to protect our wild and scenic spaces long term in a number of your writings you touch on sort of the collective memory of racialized exclusion and i think that's where some of those feelings come from i mean i myself when I was young with my father, I experienced that. I'm a very light-skinned person. My father is not. So I had those experiences as an individual and as an older person. I haven't had them myself, but I remember that, right? And there's always the threat that it could happen again. And that's why you, you know, you protect yourself. You isolate yourself from that, from that risk. And so now thinking about that sort of collective memory of exclusion, I want to know your thoughts on how do we as like the you know emerging elders as the next generation of elders protect the next generation from that? You know, it's so funny. I turned 57 last year. I'll be 58 in September. And I never consider myself old until we have these kinds of conversations where we're talking about my responsibility and obligations as a quote unquote elder. I so want to resist that term, but I get it you know, because... <laughs> I mean, because I've had the, the positive experiences and I personally believe that it's moving upon me to make sure that people come after me have at least as good an experience that I have and hopefully a little better. And so I think that it begins, number one, with recognizing that is indeed something that we should all be doing. And we can never codify it in the law. We can never say you are obligated to make this happen. But if we're serious about long-term environmental protection, we have to. because the last thing, I mean, and it's, and it's really interesting because some other older people will literally say, well, I don't want anybody else here but me. So I'm going to protect my fishing spaces. I'm not going to tell anybody where, where the best trails are. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to talk to them about my favorite camping spots or even where I like to get coffee. I don't want to see other people there. Well, you know, that's a very selfish attitude and it doesn't serve you in the long run. You know, because if people don't know about that fishing spot that you like so much, you cannot be surprised if someone comes along, buys it, okay, and puts a fleet of condos on it and posts a, a sign that says private property, no fishing allowed. Okay. Whose fault is that? Yeah. Guess what? You could have stopped, you know, by raising awareness early on 
had you been a little bit more protective of the resource. You know, I mean, I had a, a wonderful experience last season where my absolute favorite fishing spot is on private land. But here in, in Wisconsin, and which is true in most places around the country, it's subject to a voluntary easement. So the, the landowner basically says, I will allow, and I'm not even gonna call it trespassing, but people can use my land to fish. And in this particular spot, this, this farmer, not only did he allow it to happen, on his own time, he plows the grass along the riverbed so that people like me don't have to wade through the grass in order to get to a, a prime spot. And when I saw that, and I just happened to see him mowing the grass, I set my fly rod down, walked up to him, introduced myself, and thanked him for his, his generosity. And by tacit agreement, I said, and I'm going to take care of it for you. You know, and so... I think that if we can have that same attitude across all aspects of land, and so we can stop talking about ownership and start talking about stewardship, okay? You know, so that, yes, you own that land, but you're obligated to protect it and hopefully share it because the bugs and birds aren't going to obey the signs and the fences that you put up. The water's not going to flow. The wind's not going to flow in a different direction because you you put up a sign and told it to go the other way. I honestly believe that people are the same. Okay? You know, so whether we're talking about a trout stream in Wisconsin or the Rio Grande in Texas, okay, where, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of open borders in the sense that anybody should just come rolling over the, over the border, but we need to let people flow. We need to let people move across the boundaries of our country and hopefully encourage them through our kindness, courtesy, that they will do right by us by working hard and pay taxes, make money and go back home, support their families and then come back. I mean, there's, there's no reason why we can't have a conversation like that. And the same thing is true if we're talking about migratory animals. The more fences we come, we put up, the more restrictions that we put on the same caribou and elk herds and buffalo and all of these different animals. Like I was in just outside of Yellowstone this winter, and I was shocked to see that people are still hunting buffalo outside of the park and leaving their carcasses because they just want the hooves and heads. You know, That's so they're literally a full-grown buffalo carcass minus its hide, its head, and its clothes. And it's basically just allowed to sit there and rot. Now, there's plenty of carry-on eaters and coyotes and probably wolves that will scavenge the carcass, et cetera. But it just doesn't sit right with me. And, and forgive me, I'm not a hunter. There's probably somebody out there who's listening to this. They'll say, oh, that's just the way it goes. Well, we should talk about how it goes and what it ultimately means and how we can share in the management and understanding of the land, you know, so that we can manage the flow and migration wild species, even those that we've worked really hard at rehabituating, like the buffalo, like the wolf, the bald eagle, you know, all these major charismatic species that we have put back on the land. How are we going to manage them in such a way that they will be something that can be used for future generations, either for viewing or for sport? We just have to come up with an understanding that is sustainable long-term. That's all I'm asking. You know, it's going to work for a thousand years. I think we have to make the distinction, though, always between subsistence hunting and trophy hunting. Yeah, 
I mean, there are there are a lot of communities here in North America where subsistence hunting is still necessary for their living, but trophy hunting is a very different thing. And it sounds like what you're describing, what you saw outside of Yellowstone, is trophy hunting, which I am also not a fan of. Yes. Well, see, and I, and I even think that trophy hunt, hunting has its place within reason. You know, like like for example, here in Wisconsin, we had a wolf hunt, which I don't understand, but because I mean, refuse to believe that anybody's eating wolves. Okay, and you might be taking them for their pelts, but the it, it was a, a relatively short hunt. It was required by by permit. At the end of the hunt, permit maximum, at least in terms of the the number of wolves could legally be hunted was exceeded by almost 80%. Okay. So someone out there was taking more wolves than they should have. And I just don't know why. Okay. Other than cruelty and great, they got a trophy, but apparently they got four or five of them. There needs to be a, a very clear understanding as to how we can go about hunting wild animals for sport in such a way that, you know, just because there's plenty to shoot doesn't mean that you need to shoot all of them. Great. Here's your permit. Take one, yeah. you know, and leave some for the next guy. If that's, if that's the way we're going to feel about this. I think we just need to be very thoughtful in terms of how we are managing all of our natural resources. And at the end of the day, we really need to recognize that our personal rights and privileges to do certain things are contingent upon making sure that the things that we do don't impact the ability for other people to have that same privilege in the future, whether it's the following season or 10 years from now, so that we can very thoughtfully, methodically manage the resources as opposed to driving them to a crisis state so that we then have to have government intervention to quell the bloodlust that's making it so that you're killing all these animals or planting way too much cotton in Georgia, whether, I mean, cannabis growers in Northern California, for example, now that the pot trade is legal in California, you have a lot of illegal growing operations. And those growing operations are actually depleting and wrecking the flow of naturally occurring streams. And in the process, they're heating them up. And what does that do to the trout population? It ultimately makes it much harder to catch, catch fish. I mean, so there's so many different things to, that are happening on the land that need to be thoughtfully and methodically regulated. Some of them are being done legally. Some of them are being done illegally. I just think that we need to have some degree of stewardship that oversees you know, how we go about managing these things. And again, I want people who are hearing me right now to understand that I am not a big fan of government overreach. I firmly believe that we are the government, okay? Government institutions act within the best interests of the people that they serve. And if we're, go if we're going to collectively use these resources, we need to use them in such a way that everyone benefits and those who have the, the potential for suffering, those interests need to be addressed as well. So. Grow all the cannabis that you want. Just do it legally. If you need more water, let's figure out an economic diversion of those resources. You know, but if, if we literally have a choice between growing cannabis and growing something that people will eat, you know, or I mean, there, there, there are just so many different things that we need to consider when we're having these conversations, but they can't detroit into, well, I got my wants and needs satisfied. 
and you're on your own. You need to figure out what you're going to do, but I'm okay. No, we need to make sure that everybody's interests are at least addressed and hopefully in the long term satisfied. I want to shift gears a little bit. You are also a professional educator and you educate in in terms of anti-racism in the outdoors. And I want to know, what are you learning from the new generation? You know, that's a really good question. And, I, and, and it's a question that I'm constantly asking. In fact, later this morning, I'm hosting a panel discussion called Diversity, Equity, Inclusion. What's next? And so I'm talking with my good friends, uh, Carolyn Finney, Drew Lanham, and Jerry James on this very topic. And truthfully, and I'm going to be 100% honest here, my concern is that I'm not doing a good enough job of talking to the younger generation to get a better idea as to exactly what it is that they, their needs and interests are. And I don't know, maybe it's just a, my advancing years and I'm learning, and I'm not learning fast enough how to communicate with kids today. But the, the long and short of it is that I need to know more. I need to be better versed on the priorities of young people. And, and I, I want to extend an invitation right now to anyone under the age of 30 who's listening to this to give me a lesson on the things I need to know. Because frankly, I'm not 100% sure I do. I deeply and desperately want to, you know, because I can't tell anybody what's good for them. I need to listen to their interests and needs, but I'm constantly being told by young people things that, that might be contrary to my personal experience. We, we started this conversation with what it's like to be a young person in the outdoors, and I had that experience. But for some young people today, I think that that experience might be a little bit different for a variety of different reasons. I gave a talk at Princeton University a number of years ago, and I had an undergraduate, a young Black woman, ask me how I could possibly advocate for people of color to go into a place where their lives will be put at risk. Okay. So she had it in her mind, being in the outdoors is not a safe place. And there's only so much that I can do to dissuade her to think otherwise, other than to provide her with the many examples that I, I constantly share in conversations like this one, in the books that I've written, in the in the articles that I write, classes that I teach, and hopefully create experiences and opportunities where she and people like her can have those experiences on their own. And what I try to do is to create those experiences and opportunities in such a way that they have minimal barriers to access. So I know that for a lot of young people today, that economics is a challenge. Well, let me see what I can do to come up with money for gear, transportation, you know, park permits, et cetera. And once those barriers to access have been eliminated, then what do you think? Would you like to go now? And then you build in the cultural and social significance of the activity. So for example, I led a trip for three black fathers and their sons. So six people who've never been on an overnight backpacking trip before. And I removed all the barriers to access, including their aversion to camping. And that was the one deal breaker. We can have this experience, but don't make us sleep on the ground, which I totally understood. I'm not going to tell a person that the only way you can have this amazing transformational experience is, is to have a bad night's sleep in a sleeping bag on, on the hard ground in the middle of the night. We wound up you know, getting rusted cabins that had clean sheets, Wi-Fi, and cable television. And then we, <laughs> we took a short drive to the trailhead 
and walk nine miles round trip in the rain because we provided them with equipment. They had jackets and rain pants and they had a fabulous time. And I also made sure that each of the fathers got a free national park pass. One of the fathers came back to me a couple of months later to tell me that he took his whole family on a national park cross-country road trip to visit the places that he'd only heard of before. And so I want to think that if we can make the road a little bit easier for people, you know, to be able to recognize their fears and apprehensions, their anxieties, and address them in a thoughtful and meaningful manner, we can build in experiences so that they will hopefully one day do these things on their own. You know, so they won't need me to provide them with the gear because they have a few pieces of gear or they know what to look for now. And so they're going to save up their money. They're going to buy it. They will have an opportunity to be able to maybe carpool a group of other people who they enjoy spending time with and share a ride to a trailhead or park or climbing area or where it is that they want to go or whatever it is that they want to do. So when I'm thinking about the interests of young people, those are the things that I'm currently thinking about, but I'm also aware that probably some things that I'm missing and I would love to know what those things are. I know that we're running headlong towards overtime, but I still have a couple of questions. I have actually hundreds of other questions because every time as you're talking, I'm just writing more and more. I'm going to have to have you come back, but I know you've got a panel coming up, but I also want to talk about the Unhidden Project. Yes. It's so beautiful. And I know you just came back from a big trip through like Virginia National Parks and Battlefields. So tell us about this project. Sure. So Unhidden is a concept that came up oddly enough as all the stories that I've been experiencing in my writing over the last couple of years, they keep presenting themselves. And it's literally like turning a page in a book and finding a brand new story. And the title of the project Unhidden is to reveal what it is that should be in plain sight that isn't seen and we don't talk about. And so the problem with this project is that literally once I think that, okay, I've got my list of, of historical places, historical characters, historical events, and I start writing, and I've been writing this for, for months now, something new happens or some new wrinkle appears. So for example, on this trip to Virginia, I just happened accidentally to find a statue erected to Frederick Douglass in front of this obscure courthouse building in this tiny town in Maryland. And so here's the thing, everything that I'm finding is out there, but I don't know about them and other people don't know about them either simply because they're just not part of your day-to-day existence. So this particular statue to Frederick Douglass was nine miles from where he was born. And this particular town in Easton, Maryland was the very first, was the place where he was captured in his first escape attempt, attempt as an enslaved person. And he had been jailed in the Talbot County Courthouse a block away from the statue was. After the Civil War in 18... That in 1878, he gave a speech in that courtroom, courthouse called the un, called the, the self-made man. And it basically talks about what it means to be a, a person in this country who is unencumbered by the discrimination of racism, you know, and what you can do with American freedom. And it's just this amazing, amazing speech. So Frederick Douglass has a big, 
that footprint in this town. But prior to 2011, there was no recorded history of any of the things that he had done that was very clearly seen. But ironically, what brought us to this particular place was I'm traveling with my friend and photographer, Chris Graves, who has a national reputation for taking photographs of Confederate Civil War monuments that have either been taken down or in the process of being taken down. And he wanted to show me where a particular monument had been taken out. And sure enough, it was across the courtyard from the statue of Frederick Douglass. Okay. And what's interesting though, is that the Frederick Douglass statue went up almost a hundred years after the civil Confederate soldier memorial went up. And that memorial went up in 1916, which is the same year that the National Park Service was established. And so, you know, we have this insidious, tragic history of erasure where we will not celebrate Frederick Douglass, but we'll celebrate the 95 Confederate soldiers who died in the lost cause of the Civil War. And an entire community will take pride in that. But one of the things that I'm also discovering too is that those monuments, as they come down, can't just be forgotten either. Okay? We need to understand why they were put up in the first place. And one of the things that I talk about in the essay that I wrote about this experience was that those statues still represent the deaths of living, of once living human beings. Okay. We can't basically deny their humanity. We can't deny their existence, regardless of the cause for which they fought and died for. Okay? We can celebrate the human beings, okay? but we need to denigrate and hopefully learn from the mistakes of their past. You know, so no, we do not erect monuments to Confederate soldiers, just like we will not erect monuments to the January 6th insurrectionists. Okay. We will remember those incidents and we will learn from those mistakes and we'll do better the next time. And hopefully, and, and so again, we can't just take the monuments down. So like Chris and I visited the former site of the Robert E. Lee statue in Richmond, Virginia. That is, I'd never really seen it close and personal, but the space that it occupied is enormous. Okay, and now it's just a big mound of dirt with the fence around it. Okay, what are we going to put in its place? I we can't just say that like like if we were to, to erect a statue of Martin Luther King Jr. and call it good, it's we can't do that. Okay, you know because an entire community was built around this original statue. There needs to be a, a plaque, a monument that, that basically says here once was the statue of Robert E. Lee, and this is why it was taken down. The community of Richmond, Virginia decided that they didn't want to profess the principles and values of the Civil War and white supremacy, and it was removed. Okay. That's part of our history, too. We need to talk about that because literally, if we just take the statue away and put up a new one and forget the statue that was there in the first was there before it, we stand a very good chance of repeating the same history that we try to erase and not learn anything. So I think that it, that's really important that we find these opportunities to look into the past, the narratives, tell those stories. But again, as, as I started this conversation with, tell a very comprehensive story okay, that's inclusive of everything, the good and the bad. And, and recognize that we can very explicitly celebrate the contributions of everyone and, and hopefully plot a course for a much more inclusive history in the future. I love that. So 
What's next for you? I know you've got some stuff coming out with Nat Geo that you worked with and Yellowstone working towards conclusion of the Unhidden Project. So what projects do you have coming up? Do you have any big adventures planned? I, I literally, literally am all in on Unhidden and I don't have anything on the horizon after that. My, my hope, though, is that we can continue to have these conversations my the big push right now is the Centennial, which is coming up in 2026. That's the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. I'm working in partnership with the National Park Service to tell a more inclusive narrative of American history. And so that Unhidden will be a part of that. The National Geographic Explorers grant that I've been awarded will include a podcast series that will, that will dovetail with Unhidden and ultimately celebrate the sesquicentennial with a much more inclusive story. It's really interesting because I was 10 years old. My family took our very first big road trip vacation to visit national parks in 1976 for the bicentennial. And, and it was a big deal. I mean, so for those of you who are old enough to remember the Carter administration and, and what that celebration was like, I, I remember CBS News on Sunday mornings used to have this thing called the Bicentennial Minute. And they would basically talk about some moments in American history. Well, I created what I call now a hidden minute, which talks specifically about the historic narratives of people of color that had a direct role to play in the creation of our country. So on this Virginia trip, we visited the, the battlefield of Yorktown. And not very many people know that Yorktown was the decisive battle in the American Revolution. But what people don't know is that an enslaved man by the, by the name of James Armistead, who was, was indentured to the Marquis de Lafayette, was instrumental in providing military intelligence on the movement of the troops of General Cornwallis. And had it not been for his work as a spy, the execution of the Battle of Yorktown would have been completely different. So we literally have American liberation to thank a black man who had enslaved. So fast forward to the Civil War in a very similar set of circumstances at the spot called Fort Monroe in, in another part of Virginia, which is the site of the 1619 incident where 20 and odd black slaves, I want to make sure I say this correctly, African captives, they weren't slaves or enslaved at the time, but they were sold as slaves to Virginia colonists. So this was in 1619. In 1861, on the exact same spot, three enslaved men turned themselves over to the Union Army to create what is commonly known as the contraband decision of 1861, where they were basically given their freedom and created an environment where hundreds of thousands of enslaved people came across enemy lines and made it to this site in Virginia. In fact, there's a spot on what is now Hampton University where there is a tree called the Emancipation Oak. And the Emancipation Oak is basically where they were educating young children who were the children of the enslaved. It literally created the site for the first historically black college. It's right here on the campus of Hampton University, the second HBCU in the country. So these, what they call contraband camps, were established all over Virginia and in one particular spot at the former battlefield of Yorktown. And so this particular spot became an African-American enclave. It was a black community where people lived all the way up until 1976. The National Park Service decided that they wanted to make the original Yorktown battlefield more like 
what it was in 1781 at the end of this of the revolutionary war so they got these homes owned by black people under imminent domain and bought them at below market value and bulldozed them to the ground wow all to make it so that the bicentennial could be celebrated like it was in 1871 so they literally erased an entire black community that had been there for over 100 years 50 years later, for the sesquicentennial, this is one of the unhidden stories that we're talking about so that we can literally take a look at how we can change and understand all the narratives that have been happening in this country, including the ones that we tried to tell a completely different story around. And to this day, I mean, not very many people know about James Armistad. You know, not very many people know about the three enslaved men who there's a statue erected to them at the Yorktown, at the the Fort Monroe Visitor Center. But unless you go there, you're not going to see it. Right. There's no televised display of such things. So I'm really hoping that in 2050, with Unhidden as a guide, People will visit their national parks and they will know the stories of the, of the people who were there, who played a very pivotal role in the creation of these wild and scenic places or historic monuments and landmarks, and ultimately have a much more inclusive and engaging experience on their visit. That is just phenomenal. I, uh, wow. That's, that's where I'm at. I'm at, wow. Uh, oh, I, I really hope that I can have you back at some point because I have, I've got to say probably 50 more questions to add, like every, just such a generative conversation. And I can't thank you enough, but I do want to be respectful of your time. So the last question I will ask you for our listeners, where are they finding you? Where are they keeping abreast of your projects as they become available to everyone? Give me the links. Sure. Joy Trip Project. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and now on Substack, which uh, just started a couple of weeks ago, not even a week ago. And so you can get a paid subscription or free. And, you know, I, that's where my podcast will be migrated to primarily from now on, as well as other projects like the Unhidden Minute and a few other things. That's where I can get out. Joy Trip Project. James, I really can't thank you enough for this. I'm so Please, that we got to link up. This has exceeded my expectations by about a thousand percent. Thank you so much for your time. Well, it's, it's been my pleasure and, and good luck. I look forward to hearing how this all works out and I will become an avid listener. So thank you very much. And that is it for this episode. Thank you everyone for listening. Links on where to find James are available on the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. I hope this was as generative for you as it was for me. And if it was... Don't hesitate to smash the like button, because that helps us out a lot. I hope you'll join us again for another episode of BIPOC Outside.